Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing great today, Tim. We have a wonderful guest coming up that makes me feel kind of cozy. His voice is like this smooth southern Tennessee whiskey that just goes down easy. I know that the listeners are going to enjoy it. Tim, you enjoyed it during the conversation. You can tell you were having a great time. But anyway, how are you doing today? Are you having a great time today? I'm doing great, Lance. Thanks a lot for asking. Oh, Brandon? Uh, that is <laughs> that is my Brandon Schecksnyder impression. That is our guest today. He is great. He does have a soothing Southern charm and voice. He does the Southern Gothic podcast, which is great. Talks about tales of the paranormal and so much more. And Lance, in this conversation... We talked to him about vampires. Yeah, he really breaks down the history of vampires in the French Quarter of New Orleans, like Casket Girls and Jacques St. Germain. He brings up all of this history, and he does so with that storytelling technique of his. He sure does. And you can find out more about the podcast and what they do over there at southerngothicmedia.com. And Lance, I want to remind our listeners to check out the new podcast from Crawl Space Media called Dark Valley. People are loving it, and Apple Podcasts just featured it, so definitely make sure to check that out. Really exciting to have Apple Podcasts feature it, so if you don't know where to get this, just go to Apple Podcasts, and it's in the top section. You just scroll a couple times, and you'll see the uh, Dark Valley logo. We're super excited about that. And yeah, people are loving it, and when you listen and you're enjoying it, please, it goes a long way to leave a good review, maybe you know maybe five stars if you're if you're so inclined that would be great and tim if people wanted to hear episodes of dark valley plus all of our episodes ad free where would one go folks can subscribe to crawlspace premium on apple podcasts but if you're not an apple user you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there it's 4.99 a month you get ad free episodes early releases our weekly bonus show and you get early episodes of dark valley now tim if i'm a vampire just chilling in the french quarter in my casket and i'm waiting for the sun to go down so i can go out and have a good meal and i'm scrolling through twitter and i'm scrolling through Instagram and I want to follow Crawlspace, where would I do this? Well, you can follow Crawlspace at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to cut quick to commercial here and we'll be right back with Brandon Schecksnyder. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome to the podcast, Brandon Schecksnyder. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for joining us. And we were just talking before we recorded that we're all sitting in locations that are very humid right now. So I think that that is pretty apropos of the topic that we're going to be discussing today. Probably takes place in a humid environment, I'm imagining. But you can't see it. <laughs> I brought garlic. I have garlic all over my <laughs> the lower half of my body. We can smell it, though. But you can probably smell it. Yeah, but Tim yeah. can't smell it because he just got a dehumidifier. <laughs> <laughs> Garlic and humidity, right? <laughs> what a compelling scent right there. Yeah. I mean, it makes you wonder what, what else gets trapped in that dehumidifier. But uh, we'll get into that uh, a little bit later, Brandon. Before, before we do, tell us about you and your show. Yeah, man. What's your background? And tell us about Southern Gothic. 
Sure. Yeah. Well, my show's Southern Gothic, and we tell ghost stories, dark tales, all kinds of that that kind of little known history from the American South. Very much like to dive into ghost stories. Very much like to dive in old folklore, things of that like that. A little bit of tr- a historic true crime here or there as well. But you know, I came to this and, and got into this sort sort of storytelling because I grew up down in New Orleans, down there. I uh, grew up, had some parents who were genealogists and used to drag us to cemeteries all over the city as kids. Once you get that kind of vibe going, I guess it doesn't escape you, right? Kind of learned the city from the creepier vibes and kind of got in that New Orleans atmosphere and moved up to Tennessee about 20 years ago now. Been up in Tennessee for about 20 years and worked in uh, recording studios doing music. Of course, this kind of country world up here in Tennessee got me into the storytelling, you know, good old fashioned storytelling songs and a lot of this kind of aw shucks hillbilly thing going on and you know those two things kind of merged together is what how southern gothic got here we'll put it that way i'm intrigued take us back to young brandon being pulled around or being guided (laughs) through the streets of new orleans and being told ghost stories and being taken to cemeteries and graveyards was this something that you welcomed or was this something that you were apprehensive of as a young man right i hated it I just, that's the, that's the short answer. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't for the reasons you might imagine. It wasn't because I was scared. It's, you know, we, I I say the cemeteries around New Orleans and in all actuality, the cemeteries that we were going to were outside of the city. So, so my family, the, the Schecksneider name, uh, it was a group of German farmers that, that immigrated down to New Orleans back in like 1720s. They were given farms all up and down the river to help uh, feed the city, right? These kind of poor German farmers were duped into coming to North America. So our family lived out there for years. It's called the German Coast. And so all the cemeteries out there uh, on the river outside of town is where they were dragging us to see all these ancestors. And so you're talking, we're talking about humidity and heat right now. You, you can imagine as like an eight or nine year old, you're getting pulled out up and down the river on River Road out there and, and kind of go into these giant, you know, these Churches that are basically in the middle of nowhere, farm churches with these old cemeteries behind them. They're all above ground. They're all falling apart. You know, your parents are taking pictures and and kind of doing, you know, the, the old kind of uh, old fashioned, the, oh, what do you call it? Where you put the paper up on the top of the tombstone, the the not carving the, or engraving, but y- y'all know what I'm saying. So basically going out and finding information. And, you know, and then of course they would take us to the library too, because we got to go look at microfiche. This is before Ancestry. This is before the internet, right? So this is before Ancestry.com. So, uh, you know, we, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, man, you're, you it's a different, it was a different <laughs> world, you know? Sorry, sorry. Lance is cracking up. I, we just added the drop that, uh, microfiche that drop. So if that, oh. if that word comes up, sorry, I'm really sorry to drop. How could you? Tim literally just added that drop like yesterday. The odds really? that someone, yeah, we had a conversation a, a couple of days ago in, in an interview, and someone was talking about looking up things in on the library, and I said, "Oh, microfiche," and so Tim was cutting that episode found that little cut and put it in this as a drop, the odds that the next guest that comes on will say it, it like blows my mind. So obviously we had to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, well, we're old enough now, right? I mean these these old things are going to keep coming up, right? <laughs> true, true. Yeah, so yeah, sorry yeah, about totally. that. Continue. No, continue. no, you're fine. No, no, no it's wonderful. 
but yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's essentially what we were doing back then, you know, is, is I had parents dragging us to the library. So we didn't like it. I mean, I didn't like it as a kid. You know, my sister grew up, uh, she works at the archives down in the Louisiana State Museum now. So she actually, she took it a different direction and enjoys research and all, but I enjoyed the adventure of it. I think now later in life of going places, going out and kind of doing some of that legend tripping and, and going to cemeteries and, and, and enjoying that vibe. I mean, these are really old cities. This we're going to talk about later. I mean, New Orleans, I mean, you're talking 1720s. Savannah was before that. Savannah was the first planned city. Uh, these are incredibly old cities and they didn't know what to do with the dead when they got here. And they weren't really kind of kind of worked out that way. So I know in New Orleans itself, you've got these these cemeteries that are in the middle of the city that were once considered on the edge of town. And then the town just grew around them more and more. So New Orleans has that additional, you know, unfortunate nature of the water table being so high that you know they had to build it above ground as well, which is why they have their cities of the dead. They couldn't even physically bury bodies without these caskets floating to the surface over the time there. So it's fascinating. But you know, you do you do see that now where I'm at in Tennessee, there's almost a different vibe with cemeteries here because so much of this land was was a family would own a large piece of acreage, right? And they would farm or have a ranch out here, right? And they'd own, you know, several hundred acres, right, outside of Nashville. And they would have these family cemeteries, right? Where you have about 20 people buried there. Um if you can imagine Yellowstone right now, if you've seen that show, you know, out in Montana where they have a family cemetery, they own all this acreage. Well, imagine if they sold that, right? And they sell that and all these people start buying up the property. And the next thing you know, I have right down the road from me today, I have a Target. The parking lot of the Target has a cemetery in the middle of it right there next to the cemetery because it was once a family property for just generations upon generations and now they've built around the property. So cemeteries are unique, man. I, I could talk about them forever, unfortunately, for anyone that hangs out with me, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You're in good company here. We we like this stuff. Um, wait, wait, hold on a second. A, a cemetery in a Target parking lot? Is that what I heard? Oh, yeah. There's a business section part of town over here uh, called Cool Springs. And there's the, all these offices, these big offices they built just in the last 50 years. Not even 50 years, about 30 years now. I'm just south of Nashville. And uh, in the parking lot there, you can, folks can look out their office window and see about 20 tombstones there, right? Because this was once a family farm out there. And now this land has changed hands. It's been purchased. The city's moved out further and further. This is now like a business part of town, a business kind of suburb. And those those graves are still just sitting there. And the same thing with this Target kind of, you know, right by where I live. It's maybe about, I don't know, 10 tombstones in this tiny little cemetery. You'd almost miss it if you didn't realize it was right there. I think they buried high prices there. I'm- <laughs> I think the dead people are... Really inconsiderate. <laughs> How dare they? Just move them. Well, yeah. Well, you know, that, that causes curses, right? I mean, there's some stories <laughs> right. about Oh, here that. we go. You know, I mean, you could get into that. That is a pretty spooky town, New Orleans, and I'm sure that is a big reason why you gravitated towards this area. Tell us about the happenings in the French Quarter. I know you did a couple, at least a couple of episodes on vampires in the French Quarter. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, we can talk about vampires. I, that's it's one of the things that New Orleans itself is most known for, right? You know, being the, the the home of Anne Rice. She really put us on the map. Was that book was 1976 and then in 94 the the movie came out and it was just 
I, I think it changed the landscape of what haunted tourism looked like in New Orleans after that. And it really defined it. But, uh, you know, the town itself had a long tradition prior to her of having these kind of fascinating, you know, vampire stories and, and they're all over and supposedly, all right, I just heard a, a statistic that there are 50 people. There's still a group of about 50 people who consider themselves vampires who live there, who believe that they have to drink blood, whether they're human or animal blood that are out in the open in New Orleans. So this, this whole thing has gone from legend into this other, other kind of space. You know, as I told you guys before, the, the real legend of vampires in New Orleans is that folks say that the first vampires came from Europe to North America through New Orleans back in the 1720s. And, and ever since then, it's kind of earned this right as, as being a, a vampire town. Okay, now I'm picturing some boat full of vampires uh, traveling right. tra- <laughs> traveling along the Atlantic over to New Orleans. Is that how it happened? No, 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 no. So they called them the casket girls, okay? So it's actually a group of women who supposedly brought these vampires over or might have even been vampires themselves. So if you look kind of back at, at the way that the city was shaped at that point in time, this was back 1720s, right? And New Orleans itself, it began 1717. This was a French colony, right? You can picture up along the East Coast where y'all are at. We have all the British colonies are starting up there and France owned most of Canada by that point in time. And they were kind of just bopping around on the Gulf Coast trying to figure out you know, how they were going to how they were going to get uh, access to the Mississippi River, because that's really what they wanted for all the trade and everything. And, you know, they started New Orleans in 1717. This gentleman, uh, Bienville, decided he was going to build a city there at the mouth of the Mississippi. It would be a great military outpost controlling the Mississippi. It would be a great place for trade. So a bunch of soldiers and all, they created created what the city was at that point. But they had a problem because it wasn't like the British colonies where families were coming over to settle. It wasn't a a group of people looking for a new opportunities at that point. What the French colony had was, this was a business. This was a business settlement. And a city can't grow from a business settlement because it's soldiers, it's fur trappers, it's folks like that, right? Gamblers even at that point. A lot of kind of, you know, more crooked folks, if you can imagine. They say, you know, of course they sent prisoners over here as well. And so those early years in New Orleans, uh, we're probably what you would imagine kind of the rougher streets of New Orleans as today, but uh, they they needed women to come over. They needed a way for the city to grow and and you grow through families and you grow through just having people there that are going to build a culture for the city. Somewhere around, I believe 1726, they petitioned the French government to send some women over of marrying age, I believe is what they called it, right? Uh, send some women over. They said that the French king, he he allowed this. They'd done this before in Canada. They called him La Fille de Ra. Pardon my French, even though I'm from New Orleans. Um, yeah, they, they sent these women over and it was about 700 women came to Canada uh, to do the same thing. Uh, Mobile was an early French settlement. They did it there. They Pelican girls is what they were called there. But uh, the women that were sent to New Orleans, they were called La Fille à la Cassette. And they were women who were sent here to go and live at a convent, the Ursuline convent. This order of nuns came over in about 1727 to start taking care of the city and preparing it for this. They were going to take care of orphans in the city. They were going to provide some medical help. There weren't hospitals. And they built the convent. But what they didn't realize when they built the convent was this convent was going to be home to, as we were saying earlier, it's going to be home to this the, the, the continent's first vampires, essentially, right? So in 1728, a ship shows up in the middle of the night and it's a ship full of women. 
right? You got a ship full of Marian age women and they start getting off the boat and all. And of course, everybody recognizes these women as, as they say that they're kind of looking pale and they're kind of looking sickly and they don't, you know, they don't really think too much of it. They just went on this long trip across Europe. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there were fatalities on the trip, sickness, all these sorts of things. So it might not have been too outrageous at the time, but they noted how pale and gaunt and sickly they looked. But most of all, what they came with was they came with these large trunks, these large kind of crates with them. And supposedly these were their dowries for when they got married off. But what they told the men and they told the Ursulines is, please, please go put these in the attic. Please go lock them up, store them away until we get married, right? Just go lock them away. So they did that. They took these trunks up to the attic of the old Ursuline convent up there. They locked them up. The girls start living there at the convent. Days go by, time goes on, right? Nobody thinks about those trunks up there in the attic until eventually it's time for them to go up there and take the trunks. The girls are now getting married. So these nuns go up there, they unlock the attic, they walk into the attic one evening and they realize that the trunks are empty and there's nothing there in them. So all of a sudden they're a little freaked out. They realize that the windows are open and everything. These heavy, heavy trunks are empty and they think about what happened, how the girls came here. And they realize that what had happened is these trunks were actually carrying vampires from the new world. And they're freaked out by this, of course. And they go and they find a priest and they bless the room. And they're in a giant haste that evening because they want to make sure that these vampires who have been obviously sneaking out during the evening to go hunt on the town of New Orleans and then sneaking back in and living in their attic at night, they want to bless it. They take the windows up there and they have the storm windows and everything. They bless nails and they're hammering these storm windows shut, trying to stop them from getting back in. And so to this day, if you walk by there, this is still on Charter Street. If you walk by that old Ursuline convent and you look up there on the third floor, there's still these old storm windows are still nailed shut and are never opened at all because folks still believe that some of those vampires might even be up there in the attic. It's an old story and it has persisted over time for so long. Um, I even heard just recently, just to add on, somebody said during Katrina, which was a little less than 20 years ago, I don't know how true this part is, of course. They said one of those storm windows blew open during Katrina and the Vatican flew someone in specifically to bless nails and get these windows reshut. That's the origin of vampires in New Orleans right there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Now I just want to back right? this up a little bit. <laughs> Now, when you say that they're like going out at night and what they're these vampires, these, I mean, they're humans, they're, they're human beings who are murdering people and drinking their blood. Is that really what we're talking about? Um, We're talking about the undead here. Right, we're talking about the, the the fantastic nature of what a vampire is. Right, this is the immortal coming to the new world. This is the wild west. Right, they can get away with anything here. We're in a town that is the frontier. There's no hospitals yet. There's no crime. There's no telling what kind of trouble they can get into here. So that's why New Orleans would have seemed so attractive at that point. Now we can dissect it and go into the reality, and I can tell you some of the reasons about what's true and isn't about the legend, of course. But yeah, that's what we talk about today when we talk about that old Ursuline convent. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. I'm curious how people back then are even aware of vampires in the first place. Yeah, well, vampirism in Europe started becoming a kind of legend in the 1600s. So these folks coming from France at that point in time, this was a relatively new fear 
in Europe at that point. So they likely brought with them some of those kind of cultural elements of, of this is something we're afraid of at night. You know, whether at that point in time, uh, that was the type of tale that you scare your kids or something like that. We have a similar one down there as well. There's a, a cryptid down there called the Rougarou. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Rougarou, but it was a, it's like a Cajun werewolf. And it's the same kind of deal, you know, but in France at one point in time, I, I I want to say it was the 1700s when I can't remember exactly. They had a wolf problem in France at one point, 1600, 1700s, that caused this French beast to come out called Labette. You know, it was this European werewolf. When the Cajun people came to Louisiana, they brought this kind of creek, brought them, you know, quote unquote, with them. And it was a fear of this cultural element that they had learned there, but it was in a new environment. Now it was like a swamp werewolf. Right. As opposed to this this kind of creature that they were used to back home. And the vampires were likely a part of that. And New Orleans, you know, had that that French influence and likely that's what brought it wasn't something that like a Puritan colonist in New England necessarily brought with them. They were more scared of witches. Right. Yeah. You calling us Puritans? Yeah. I'm going to get into this already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, okay. Well, yeah, no, that's all really interesting stuff. I love hearing about legends, but they all came from something true, right? There's, There's got to be some truth to that story. On the spectrum of believing from full on believer to not, you know, we could certainly go as far down either way as we want to, you know. I told you guys that they called them Fiela Cassette, right? They've come to be known as casket girls. What we believe in a lot of ways is that there's been a translation error that happened in the early 20th century. What they were talking about at this point in time was these boxes that were called caskets came over. They were trunks that they were the dowries, like I told you, but that's all they were. At this point in time, they were translated as having brought caskets with them. And that might have been the origin of the story in the early 20th century. That's a recurring theme that I get when I look at just about any legend at this point in time, all up through the South. You have these points in time where a legend could take hold for a specific reason. And in the early 20th century, as they're translating things, what we had down here specifically in New Orleans and some other areas, so we started to have like the Works Progress Administration. They were going around and doing oral histories and folk histories, and they were starting to publish this stuff. So we think a lot of this legend came up in that point in time. It came up as we're recording these things, as we have this kind of transition of cultures in the early 20th century and this mistranslation of it. But who the women were is another debate at the same time, because um, if you grew up in New Orleans, it was for a long time, folks really enjoyed saying that they were descended from these women. It's up for debate who they were even. Some people say that they were orphans in France. Some people say that they were sponsored by uh, local parishes. Parish priests sponsored them. These were good women. Some people say that they were daughters of wealthy uh, wealthy folks over in France that wanted to give them an opportunity to have, have new land because they were like the second oldest daughter, right? Or something of that nature. Or they were straight up you know, prisoners or, you know, taken off the streets. There's no telling. There's no real clear line as to who they were. So uh, you kind of add that into the mix as well when, when, when you wonder, you know, who they were and what they brought with them. Well, one individual who adds to this whole vampirism in New Orleans is Jacques St. Germain. Yeah, he's one of our uh, one of our most infamous individuals down there for sure. You know, there's there's quite a few different vampire tales along the way over the years. And uh, Jacques is, uh, ironically, he lived about two blocks from the Ursuline convent where this all started. 
Okay, because the French Quarter is so chock full of legends. You can stand on this one street corner. You can see the Ursuline Convent one way. You can look the other way. You're a block away from the infamous uh, LaLaurie Mansion where they had that awful fire with the woman who had the enslaved people there she was torturing. You look another way. You got the old trunk murders there all within like three blocks. And right there on this corner, uh, it was uh, St. Anne and Ursuline. Uh, is this house with a red door. It's a beautiful corner house. Jacques St. Germain lived there for a long time. And it's up for debate who exactly he was. But the story goes that back in the early 1900s, this gentleman came to town and he was very clearly uh, descended from royalty. He spoke all kinds of languages. He played the fiddle beautifully or the violin beautifully. Great conversationalist. Had all these incredibly interesting stories. And everybody just kind of fawned over this guy and just how charismatic he was, right? He kind of got a following, started having parties at his house, these big parties, all these people came in and high society didn't really like him much because he was, you know, he was the center of attention, taking it away from them, you know, and he'd tell these stories to people who were enthralled and they're all drinking at these giant parties. And he's telling these stories about everybody from going back to, to Julius Caesar and all these kind of classic figures, but he's telling these stories as if he was there. And folks didn't notice at first. They just thought it was kind of a charming thing. But, you know, eventually uh, they started to realize that Jacques wasn't drinking or eating at these highly New Orleans parties for like, you know, a lot of a, a lot of drink and food, if you can imagine. Uh, he would just stand there and tell stories. And he just had this one cup with him of what looked like red wine. Right. Well, one day. As this goes on after a while, Jacques having these parties. He's a man about town. He's become a big deal around town. One day, one morning, excuse me, all of a sudden, a woman comes jumping, either thrown or jump out of a window from Jacques St. Germain's second story house onto the ground. She's bleeding. She's running, screaming in pain. Everybody kind of comes and they go and they circle her and they ask her what's going on. And she's screaming about the man inside and this devil inside and how he tried to bite her neck. And he tried to hurt her and she's bleeding and all. And everybody thinks she must be this drunk, crazy person, right? But they call the cops anyway. And she swears up and down that this happened and all. And they take her down to the station and they say, you know, and they know Jacques. He's this rich guy. He's got all this money. He's this, you know, charismatic dude. They don't really think anything of it, but they promise we're going to go and we're just going to talk to him. Obviously, this thing happened. So they go down to the house and they knock on the door and they realize that Jacques's gone. After all this time of having all these parties, the house is entirely emptied out. The cops go inside the house and they start looking around. They find everything's missing in the house, but there's a stash of wine there. And when they open up the bottles of wine, they find out in the bottles of wine that he was drinking was blood. Of course, at that point, they believe that Jacques must be a vampire. He's gone down in fame. And if you go to New Orleans today, it's beautiful. It is a beautiful house. It's a private residence. You can see one of the windows on the on the resonance is bricked over and they say that that's the window that that woman had jumped out my biggest problem with this story it's amazing but why would the vampire leave his blood behind chug it chug it (laughs) well you know this one kind of connects into the old uh, the comp saint germain tale if you guys have you ever heard of the comp saint germain he was like the famous time traveler 
where he was either a time traveler or an immortal. And that was that old European gentleman. He knew everything, knew all these languages and all. And folks still say they've seen him in pictures over time, seen the same guy like with a cell phone and, you know, this this kind of old uh, old cat. And this was the New Orleans version of that. And maybe that's how he got the name. Now, with this one, unlike the kind of early story with the casket girls, um, you know, honestly, we've never really found quite where the origin of this story pinpoints in the city. It seems like a, a little bit of a newer tale. It seems like maybe it's something that's more of this kind of Anne Rice generation that maybe we came up with. Um, the house is gorgeous if you get a chance to go by there. It is a beautiful home. Um, you can see it in a way that you, you can imagine a vampire wanting to live on this street corner anyway. You know. <laughs> <laughs> now, do the current homeowners know about this legend? They must, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's probably one of the most photographed houses in the, in the French Quarter at this point. So a lot of people coming by, taking pictures in front of the house and things like that? Absolutely. And if you go on Halloween, they're going to, they lean into it. Oh, do the they? way they decorate. Oh, yeah. You, you've got to have a sense of humor. If you, if you own a home in the French Quarter, I mean, you got to understand that there's a little price to pay besides the, uh, the real estate price, right? <laughs> right. You got to deal with all the vampires around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vampires, ghosts, and the tourists searching for them. There was never another sighting or another account of St. Germain after this moment where the woman jumped out of the window and then they found the house to be empty? No, Jacques was gone forever. Jacques was gone. Jacques was gone. He never came back. So they've only talked about him since then. Like I said, this was early 20th century. So I don't have that deep of a knowledge of the Comte St. Germain, but supposedly the Comte St. Germain has popped up in the 20th century. So if this was the same gentleman, as some people might suggest, this was like his New Orleans vacation, if you will, his like New Orleans era, you know, maybe we did see him again. Maybe he just kind of took on this personality while he was in the Crescent City. I don't know. I think you might be him. If if he was really immortal, I don't know. I think it was going through my mind as well. He's still with us, and I don't know. I don't know. You're the one spreading the stories now. I think it's you. Oh, uh, well, you. I've aged. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, so nothing nothing factual necessarily, like no archive, like newspaper archive about this Jacques St. Germain, but a legend that persists today. And you mentioned Anne Rice. I guess tell us how she influenced the culture. As you can imagine, the French Quarter in and of itself just has that spooky vibe, right? So it, it is lent to this, and... You know, a lot of the old traditions, um, there's some ghost stories and things of that nature that that have roots that just go back hundreds of years and have evolved and just made this really complex gumbo of the way the, you know, the French people had a legend and then the Spanish came in and just uh, took it to the next place and all. And so it's not a stranger to tales like this already. It's It's pretty good breeding ground for this sort of thing. Uh, with all those European cultures all converging in one spot. So, you know, when Anne Rice kind of came in, and like I said, it was it was 76 when she released Interview with a Vampire. So uh, the town itself at that point wasn't even quite, if I can call it, as cleaned up as it is today. Uh, at that point in time, the French Quarter didn't have the haunted tourism like you see today. It wasn't quite a spot where you would you would go for this. You know, now you could take a trip, a vacation down in New Orleans and do nothing but ghost hunt and do nothing but go on these tours and even the pirate stuff down there with, with Jean Lafitte and all, right? So when she came out with it, what it really did is it, it added this new element 
to the city. And when the movie came out in 94, you know, I, I don't, you guys might be old enough to remember the movie, but I'm sure you're old enough to remember that the craze when Twilight came out. That's what Anne Rice did to New Orleans for the best way to describe it. As all of a sudden you got vampire fever down there, you know, and she picked real places to have these fictional characters go to. She used real settings and she integrated them into the history. So it really made it that much more tangible for folks to talk about and to feel out, you know, really and, and, and make it a vampire town. Yeah. And you mentioned Twilight, the vampires that Anne Rice came up with, you know, they cannot hold a candle to the uh, the Twilight vampires, in my opinion. <laughs> they don't glow correctly. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Nah, just kidding. Uh, Brad Pitt was quite the heartthrob as as a vampire. Come on, y'all. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the movie. I remember seeing it when it came out. Kirsten Dunst, what a performance by her. Pretty amazing cast. Yeah, really great cast. Tom Cruise playing against type a little bit there, too. It's a great movie. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. You mentioned very casually earlier about vampires still being around in New Orleans, still drinking blood. What's going on with that? Well, you know, for, for whether what you believe or don't believe, there's a certain amount of folks out there who still believe or believe that they are vampires kind of act in such a way so that there are organizations in the French Quarter even of these type of people who believe that they have some type of disease or some type of sickness that comes from the legendary vampire. That means they might need the iron of blood, whether it be human blood or, or animal blood to kind of keep them alive. So what I mentioned was about 50 50 people. I, I had just heard that statistic. It was somebody did like a graduate thesis where they went and did a, a supposedly academic kind of a cross section of the population, of the French Quarter, and you know found that this is how many people in the French Quarter living today believe that. Otherwise, a lot of it is a shtick as well. I, I don't mean to knock those folks at all, and I don't mean that because you know we still have like a vampire cafe down there that really leans into it and uh, you still have all these kind of segments of, of it that want you to to come and it'd be a bit of a tourist trap there's a spectrum of what you believe and don't in new orleans and it's it's muddied up pretty good down there i mean ultimately if there's no harm done though what's the what's the downside of saying you're a vampire i know exactly right they're not biting me i hope we'll see right if you go visit and find out i think you said something like there's still some people who believe they're vampires but if you believe you're a vampire aren't you just a vampire oh man you might be too existential for me lance <laughs> i just tell ghost stories i'm too hillbilly for that too, too many hillbilly ghost stories to go that deep into philosophy <laughs> <laughs> what's happening in my brain is like vampires i guess we can all agree like they're not real right in the sense that they're immortal and yeah. they can't go out in the sunlight and a stake would make them explode. Yes, I agree with that. Right. Okay. So if I believe I'm a vampire, then hey, maybe that's how they identify. Maybe that's their pronoun. Prove it. You got to drink some blood yeah. to be a vampire. <laughs> I you Look, if somebody's immortal, how can you really prove or disprove that, right? I mean, until they die, but if they outlive you, they just outlive you and you're never going to know. And I mean, even if they die, they can just say, well, this was just a, you know. They got staked. Like, yeah. Let's say they get hit by a car and they die, you know, like, well, I'm going to, I just need some time to recuperate. 
if something like that was going to happen. I, I mean, hell, that's a part of the Anne Rice story. Lestat goes and he lives in a tomb yeah. down there in Canal Street, you know, down at the foot of Canal down there. Lives in a tomb for like a hundred years and gets his energy back before the second book. That's how I get my energy back in between interviews. You lay in your casket. <laughs> I lay in my tomb. <laughs> you soak that humidity <laughs> up, huh? <laughs> I do think that's an interesting question, but but you have to drink some blood, right? There's got to be some... I mean, it doesn't have to be human, I suppose, right? The definition of vampire, like you're saying, I mean, obviously, it depends who you ask, right? There's other, like, vampiric-like creatures in folklore that don't just suck blood, you know? I mean, we just did an episode on uh, this creature called the Boo Hag out in Charleston out there, and it's like a, like a uh, sleep paralysis demon that the Gullah culture brought with them from Africa. And what it does is it kind of slides into your house in the middle of the night and kind of gets up on your chest and steals the energy out of your breath, you know? So there's kind of that vampiric creatures kind of take different forms depending on what culture you come from. Whether or not what's real or isn't, I usually take a fairly, to cheat or for lack of a better term, a fairly agnostic approach with a lot of it because the more that I study ghost stories and legends, the more confused I get, like I can tell you how many of these things really are, you know, BS and come from just awful history and just come from maybe, you know, tour guides that want to just sell some tickets and have entertainment. But there's also people I'll talk to because y'all, I hear everybody's weirdest day. All right. Everybody wants to tell me about the weirdest thing they ever experienced because of what I do for a living. Right. And some of these people are genuine and I can't deny what they're saying in any way, shape or form because it really was their experience. So I tend not to try and make a decision if something's real or isn't. A lot of these things come from experiences, you know, and are you a vampire or not? It's it's up to them. Okay. That's fair enough. Good answer. But if I wanted to meet real vampires and I booked my ticket to New Orleans, one-way ticket at this point, because I don't know how long this is going to take, but I'm hanging out in the French Quarter, what, what would I do? How would I go find these vampires? Oh, let's look to Anne Rice. Let's talk about Anne Rice here. How did uh, how did Louis become a vampire? He went and got in fights and looked like he was fearless and didn't want to live anymore, and Lestat found him that way, right? Do you want to become one, or do you just want to be a victim? That's the real question. <laughs> I just want to know if it's real. You just want to know if it's real? I, man, head down there and, uh, you know, maybe put on a like Bauhaus t-shirt and go hit up some of those dark clubs down there and start asking around. I mean, look, look extra goth that night and start asking folks. You're bound to run into somebody. And then I'll turn it into Van Helsing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or what's that new, the new one, Renfield, you know, Renfield's right, the, yeah, right. the one that, that he feeds off of. Yeah. That kind of brings me to my next question about Nick Cage. Similar to the question about Anne Rice, what do you think that Nick Cage has done to enhance the vampire reputation with him being a resident and a fan of New Orleans and a vampire? Man, he came down there and he really dove in deep. I mean, he owned that that LaLaurie house for a little while. He built this massive tomb in one of the cemeteries down there, uh, this big pyramid tomb. I don't know how much he helped that culture as much as made us look a little crazier for it. But there's also the the story that he's immortal because of that photo. I haven't seen this. You haven't seen this? The, no. There is a photo from 1870 where it's it's like a sort of a spitting image of him. All right, I got I got I got it. This is a few years ago, a conspiracy that kind of went viral back in 2017, I guess. I, he was even asked about it, too. Yeah, I see it. It right does there. look like him, I have to say. The, the picture does look like him. Uh maybe he's Jacques Saint-Germain, huh? Now, the house he bought, I mean, it it was a block away from the Jacques Saint-Germain to put it in perspective. 
I think we've gotten to the bottom of this Jacques St. Germain mystery. <laughs> Has there ever been a connection made between him and Nick Cage? I guess not. We might be onto something new. Now, look, if I've learned anything from telling stories, I, this is how shit gets started, okay? is you, you, Somebody comes up with a wild idea somewhere around there, and the next thing you know, there's going to be some uh, some YouTuber is going to hear this hear this episode of Crawl Space, and they're going to be like, man, that must be true. And then it's going to hit the YouTube, and then it's going to start hitting the blogs. And next thing you know, like, I don't know, one of those History Channel TV shows is going to be talking about it. It all started right here, right here. Next thing you know, we're going to get a cease and desist from Nick Cage himself. <laughs> I dare him. I was going to ask you when you decided to become a storyteller and when you decided that this would be your subject matter, how important was it for you to do it from a historical perspective the way you do? Because when you listen to your episodes, you do feel like you're getting a bit of a history lesson and it makes it even that much more rich and fun. Well, the honest answer is it felt like the history was a crutch at first as I learned storytelling. It felt like being able to accurately look at documents in the way that we had learned to do it uh, was important. But I am really fascinated with haunted tourism. If you were to come to this town that I live in now, you know, this is a way for folks to enjoy the town and walk through town and learn about it in a way that isn't straight up boring, right? And you get that everywhere. And so I was trying to mimic what that that ghost tour you get, that haunted tour in town would be but on a podcast. So the short answer is it, it felt like it was important to separate it from some of the other shows that might just grab the Wikipedia articles. It kind of became a tagline along the way too. If we said, you know, it's like, tell me the story that your mama told you and I'll figure out what's real about it. Now, that's kind of how we, we we would pitch it to our listeners. You know, what's, what are all them lies you heard growing up from those, uh, you know, the old people in town and we'll go actually check it out. Now, do you make it a practice to attend walking tours and haunted tours in various cities throughout the country? Oh, yeah. Well, that's my favorite thing to do is actually go to a lot of the places. Uh, I'll be in Charleston next month, actually. Uh, we'll be doing some tours, have a couple things there. If, if you guys know uh, Mike Brown from uh, Pleasing Terrors, I'm going to go uh, hang out with him one night, You know, hear him. Amazing storyteller there. It's always been a part of what I believe and is, is entertaining about this is when you go to one of these places, you never really truly understand until you stand there. This is power of place and actually being somewhere uh, and learning about the history that really impacts you. You know, so I've been all over for that reason. Uh, here here in I'm in Franklin, Tennessee, right right south of Nashville. It's a old Civil War town. There's a, a big Confederate battle here, a big battle here, excuse me, uh, right at the end of the war, right after Atlanta fell. Uh, there was a battle here in Franklin where 10,000 people died in a period of four hours. They called it uh, the Gettysburg of the South, just a massive battle. And so, of course, we got a lot of ghost stories because of that, right? I do a little bit of seasonal tour guide. A friend of mine owns the company, owns a company here called Franklin Walking Tours. And uh, when she you know, takes a vacation or something, I go fill in because I really enjoy that part so much. It's something that you find in every town and it's grown just to massive proportions at this point. You know, Charleston has at least a dozen. New Orleans has one of every type, shape, size. So yeah, it's a blast doing them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that people who have got a little taste of what we talked about today should definitely head over to check out your podcast and check out the uh, website as well. Southern Gothic is the podcast and southerngothicmedia.com is the website and put the links in the show notes. But it's so obvious when you're listening to you tell these stories that you are drawing that 
energy from those like walking tour moments like when you're listening to it you feel like you're on this virtual or like emotional walking tour so really can't recommend it enough great work thanks lance appreciate it well brandon thank you so much for hanging out with us today and telling us about your show and about the vampires of the french quarter and so much more this has been a lot of fun it's been a blast thank you guys for having me for sure 